Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The words of Koheleth. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Grab your seats. One more prayer. Father, meet us now by your spirit. Speak to each of us wherever we find ourselves respectively. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with art. I like to do this. The imagery of God's creation is always so powerful. This is Caravaggio, 17th century painting. It's entitled St. Jerome Writing. I realize it's not very easy to see with it being so bright in here. But can one of you tell me, two of you tell me, three of you tell me, what sticks out to you in this image? What's odd about this image? It's all right, small room. Just shout it out. What is it? There's a skull. What? This dude is sitting here. I mean, he's obviously very fashionable in his little sweet robe there. He's doing, he's, he's, he's writing, he's reading, he's studying, but then set there at the table is, is a skull. It's said that St. Jerome, which is a depiction of, of who, who this is, this is a depiction of St. Jerome, it, it's said that he translated the Latin Vulgate, which is maybe one of the most important translations in the history of the Bible, with a skull seated right next to him to always remind him as he translated the words of eternity that his end was coming. Fascinating, huh? This next image is a Baroque artist, Anthony Van Dyke, 16th century artist. And this is entitled Portrait of a Monk of the Benedictine Order. Again, class, what do we see that's odd? Can you guys see anything off about this? Hair. Yeah, his hair is super weird. And he's holding a skull again. What is going on with this? He was a monk of the Benedictine order. And obviously this monk was following the rule that Benedictine had set out for his monastic communities where Benedict said, day by day, remind yourself that you're going to die. Hour by hour, keep careful watch over all you do, aware that God's gaze is upon you wherever you are. And so this fellow obviously took it literally and held a skull in his hand as this picture was depicted for him. One more, one final one, just for fun here. This is the work of a guy named Matt Lentz. He's a tattoo artist up at Dark Age Tattoo in Seattle. And so you'll notice the sort of gruesome looking skull, the snake, the serpent, the source of our downfall and our death wrapped about the skull. You'll see the leaves surrounding the entire work, the depiction of the fall of humanity the demise of all of us, and then through the entire work, through the snake, through the skull, the sword of the word of God, the death of death. This tattoo sits right here on the inside of my arm, right close to my heart. And I recognize it's a gnarly piece. It's probably the most gnarly piece I have in all the many, many tattoos that I have. And I'm sure it's probably gonna scare my grandkids as they get older. <laughs> But someday they're going to talk about their grandpa that so, so, so loved life because he always kept death right next to his heart. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, dude, Dan, holy moly, I came here for some donuts, 
maybe some smiles, a sermon. I mean, this is heavy. Why in the world are we sitting here staring at skulls and talking about death? We do this this morning because Koheleth, the teacher, the book of Ecclesiastes, where we find ourselves as a community for the next few months, he is a continual cold splash of both helpful and healing reality, Sunday after Sunday for the Christian community. At the epicenter of Koheleth's thinking was a concentrated and continual consideration of his personal imminent death. Now, much like you and I, Koheleth filled his life with love and lust, pleasure and power, and everything else that might make life worth living. Yet when it was all said and done, in light of his ultimate end, Koheleth concluded that everything he'd ever done, everything he had ever experienced, was nothing more than a mere chasing, a herding of the wind, meaningless vapor. Hevel is the Hebrew word. Remember this? Now, as moderns, most of us spend most of our days with death looming somewhere far out there in the background. It's something that exists, but it doesn't really touch our daily lives. We're just fine leaving thoughts of death to the emo indie music scene and these obscure A24 films. (laughs) But science and medicine and modern comforts, they have made it almost easy for us as moderns to forget our unavoidable future. And when the topic comes up, we're honestly kind of slightly offended. And we tend to just afterwards scroll a little bit more vigorously until we forget (laughs) again. Now, despite our distraction and our sense of distance from death, almost everything that you and I do this week is going to be an unconscious effort to overcome it. Vegan diets, vitamin shots, probiotics, paleo and pescatarian diets, sleep hygiene, slow breath work, saunas and spas, CrossFit, Pilates, low-impact cardio, high-intensity interval training, cold plunges, cryo-freezing, cloning, genetic manipulation, loading our minds onto a computer. All of these things and thousands more are humans' attempt at destroying death. But dearest loved ones, this morning, it will have its way with all of us. There are those, as we prayed in this room today, who are grieving and living in the immensity and the pain and the loss of death. And no matter how prepared we find ourselves for it, the finality of death is disorienting and is devastating. And so we humans justifiably fear death. It is a healthy and good thing to lament death, to not just gloss it over, to not just get on with it and move on and be fine with it when death comes close. And it is also, this morning, not in any dark or macabre way, important and vital and helpful and healthy for you and I to deeply consider our own deaths. The ancients had a practice called memento mori. Can you say that with me? Memento mori. You all sound like Harry Potter wizards. Memento mori. Death memory. Remembering one's death. Teresa of Avila, who died very, very young, one of the great saints of the Catholic Church, she said, remember that you have only one soul, that you have only one death to die, that you have only one life, which is short and has to be lived by you alone, and that there is only one glory which is eternal. If you do this, there will be many things about which you care nothing. So, so good. So good. Memento mori, death memory. Remembering our imminent demise clarifies our days. 
It gives us a tremendous focus to realize that this may be my last day. And it gives us a perspective that actually enhances our moments of life, increases our joy, empowers our mission with vibrancy and passion. Christian tradition, friends, is replete with deep consideration of death, despite what the Western church has done in the modern age. This Wednesday, as we already announced, we are going to be joining with millions of Christians throughout Christian history in the observation of Ash Wednesday. We'll come forward in lines and we'll have ashes placed on our foreheads in the symbol of a cross as the ash giver repeats the refrain, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. Briefly, I remember the first time I did this with my kids. They were little. We lived in Seattle. We didn't have any ashes. They must have been probably... I don't know, six, four, and two. They were just little. They were little and obnoxiously cute. And we decided to do an Ash Wednesday. I was learning about the liturgies and all these things that I had missed out in in Protestant Western Christianity. And I wanted to do this with my family. So Ash Wednesday rolls around. We go out, we get some dirt from the garden out front. And I put ashes. And my kids, they're just beaming. This is like this enjoyable, bright thing. And I'm placing ashes. And it was so moving to sit and look at the vibrancy of life and know to know that this one that I love so deeply, to dust she and she and he, my three kids, will return. And so will I. Now, Christianity has always surrendered to death as an inescapable reality. And Christianity has always surrendered to death while simultaneously facing it as an enemy that has been conquered. More on that at the end of our time together this morning, but for now, we have to let the tensions of our book, Koheleth, his teachings, we have to let his teachings build the tension into our souls here. So Koheleth, back to him. Having built his own personal Garden of Eden on the backs of slaves that he used for his projects and sexual pleasure, Koheleth turned his attention to the deeper things of life. Koheleth began to consider the wise life, or he began to look at the fools and the madness of existence around him. If money, power, and sex ultimately had failed him, maybe choosing to live a virtuous or a wise life might suffuse his existence with meaning. And for comparison's sake, Koheleth said, well, maybe madness is the way to go. Ecclesiastes 2.12. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. And so Koheleth, as he looked at human existence, he saw two distinct ways of living. You could live wisely or you could live foolishly. This is a great place for us in this book to pause for just a bit and develop the ancient Hebrew concept of wisdom and foolishness because Koheleth and Jesus were saturated in these ideas. Fools and sages what exactly did Koheleth mean when he said, I stopped to consider living wisely and I stopped to consider living madly or as a fool? Often when my teenage children will leave the house, I'll say to them, make wise choices, <laughs> make wise choices. And I'm praying to God that they generally understand what I mean by saying, make wise choices as they walk out the door. I mean, be careful. Don't do anything that might harm you or others. Don't damage anything. Don't do anything dumb. Don't drink. Don't do drugs. Don't smoke. Don't chew. Don't run with those that do. Make wise choices. Those types of things. When Koheleth set about to live wisely and explore foolery, he considered that same list of virtues and vices similar to the list that I have for my kids. But for Koheleth, wisdom and foolishness in the Hebrew imagination was much more than just our merely outward behaviors. For the Hebrews, wisdom and foolishness was wrapped up in one's character. 
wisdom and foolishness was at the core of one's being. Wisdom and foolishness was about our interior dispositions. Wisdom and foolishness was interwoven into the person that we are. And so, from the Hebrew traditions of wisdom and foolery, a wise person made wise choices out of what they were. And fools did foolish things, making dumb choices, out of what they were. And as with everything in the Hebrew world, there was this constant opportunity and a continual invitation to partner with God, the scriptures, and the surrounding community for the sake of transformation. Track with this. We see throughout the biblical record, wise men scorning convictions and ignoring counsel, their hearts hardening and going mad. We also see throughout the biblical record Those who begin to practice discretion and heed the guidance of God and yield to the scriptures and listen to the wise community around them, fools would be transformed from the inside out. Everything about wisdom and foolishness in the Hebrew mind was based on one's relationship to God himself. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. And so according to the wisdom literature of Kohelet's day, fearing God made one wise, and to not fear God was the epitome of foolishness. Now, this fearing God was not necessarily trembling before God in terror, although I will say, friends, for the late modern Western, a healthy dose of your body shaking when in the presence of an all-powerful being is certainly more wise than us shaking our fist at him. Fearing the Lord was both recognizing in awe and wisdom, his grandeur and power, and it was also about trusting and honoring this great God's directives for our lives in every way. Wisdom would fear God by obeying from the heart God's directives, his will, his guidance, his commands, obeying them politically, obeying them relationally, socially, economically, sexually, spiritually, Wisdom obeys God, fears God, honors God from the heart, from within, in every category of life. Folly is the opposite. Fools do not trust God's directives. Fools dishonor God's will. And here's one of the more important notes as we understand Koheleth's framework for folly and wisdom. The consequences, the repercussions of foolishness and the rewards of wisdom, the fruit of wise living and the Consequences of foolishness, for the Hebrew, they were baked into the cake of creation itself. We're told in Proverbs that God actually created all of creation with wisdom. Wisdom is personified as this beautiful woman giving order to all of the cosmos and all of God's ideas. Proverbs 8, 27 to 31. I was there, says Lady Wisdom. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Chokmah. Can you all say chokmah? 
Chokmah, Hebrew scholars, all of you. Koheleth, Hevel, it's all meaningless. But the man's mind was filtered. His eyes saw existence through Chokmah, this Hebrew term for wisdom. And for Koheleth, when he looked out on the world, the consequences of foolery and the rewards of wisdom were baked into creation itself because Chokmah, wisdom, was this invisible force it was an attribute of God that God was constantly using to order all things and put them in their right place. For Koheleth and for the modern Christian, following the teachings of the entire narrative of Scripture, God created the universe. God created moral structures. God created your identity. God created all of existence to be ordered and honored in a certain way. There is a grain to the universe a way that things should be. And so to live wisely is to go with the grain of the way that things should be. And to live foolishly is to go against the grain of creation. I like to think of this like honoring or ignoring gravity. That's how heavy and weighty this is. For the Hebrews, to foolishly rebel against God was like a madman mocking gravity's power. <laughs> a foolish person in our day and age might say something like this. I can't see gravity, so it probably doesn't exist. Who are you to tell me that gravity exerts its force on me? I decide for myself what gravity does and doesn't do. <laughs> your truths about gravity are your truths, and my truths about gravity are my truths. All of your talk about gravity is offensive, abusive, and toxic. No one can define gravity for my life. I define gravity as I think it should be. And with statements like that, fools huck themselves off the proverbial cliffs of life and the destructive consequences are unavoidable. Now here's where Koheleth teachings and the teachings of Jesus really dial in on our own lives. Sin and Satan have made this world a fool's paradise, and each of us have respectively hucked ourselves off of the cliff. <laughs> this is core to the story of the Bible. The fall of humanity turned us into fools. God had wisely given directives for Adam, the first man, and Eva, the source of life. God had given directives for them. He wanted to bless them. He wanted them to multiply. He wanted them to cultivate art and beauty and industry and agriculture, create cities and societies. He had all of this blessing for them if they would make wise choices. And to make wise choices, there in the garden was the fool's temptation, a tree of knowledge and good and evil. And they chose foolishly. They partook of the forbidden fruit, and they forever set in that moment foolishness in the human heart. The records of the saints have told us throughout the Bible and all through history that we choose unwisely when we go about our days. It's our default mode setting. But friends, God is always merciful with fools. You and I. He wants to make us wise. God has unconditional, unrelenting love and mercy for fools. Chrysostom said that the madness of men in comparison to the mercy of God is like a tiny little spark being tossed into a Pacific Ocean. How quickly does the Pacific Ocean put out a tiny little spark? So no matter how madly you and I have lived, no matter what foolish choices we have made, we are immersed in this Pacific Ocean of love and kindness and gentleness and hope and transformation. In the biblical record, God rarely, God rarely actively punishes fools. In fact, God's active punishment of a fool 
comes only after the fool has absolutely refused to yield in any way. I am in Exodus in my morning prayer times, just traveling along with foolish Pharaoh as Pharaoh hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart. And finally, along the fool's errand's way, the father says, okay. What God does is he quits resisting fool's dumb choices, and he allows them to experience the full consequence of choice. Fools in the biblical narrative are not destroyed by God. They self-destruct by their own power. Fools aren't pushed off the cliff by God. You and I have never been shoved off the cliff by a cruel God. We have hucked ourselves off the cliffs, and we have been hurt, and we are hurt as his act of mercy because then he comes to us in our crumpled up state at the bottom of the cliff, and he says, let me heal you. Let me hold you. Let me have you. And so the final facet here of Koheleth's sort of understanding of wisdom and foolishness was that the Hebrew scriptures seem to always promise a good life for the wise person and a bad life for the foolish person. Proverbs is probably the quintessential text on wisdom. Whatever you guys think of wisdom literature, you think of Solomon's Proverbs, 31 of them, one a day keeps the devil away, that whole type thing. Proverbs is especially adamant about this sort of idea that wise living brings good and flourishing, foolishness brings demise. Proverbs almost sets up like this weird equation, excuse me, in our relationship with God. Over and over and over when you read the Proverbs, it basically says, do this in the fear of the Lord and you're going to get this in return. Do this in rebellion against God and you're going to get this reward or you're going to get this consequence in return. Now, from work ethics to neighborly and marital relationships to speech patterns to child wearing to wine and wealth, Proverbs over and over and over says, if you do this, then that will happen for almost every category of life. Gohella comes along and he begins to say, mm, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Some of the equations, I plugged it in. Nope, didn't work. Job comes in and says, I'm taking the entire book of Proverbs and I'm throwing it in the trash. <laughs> Job will be a session that we do someday. We will go through Job as a church. It may be one of the most important books we ever teach. Suffice it to say, you need to read all three of the wisdom sages in the Hebrew scriptures together. You need to read Proverbs. Do this and that will happen. You need to read Koheleth. I'm kind of questioning that. And you need to read Job. There's mystery here. Sometimes it flat out does not work out. And that is painful. And that is difficult. What was clear for Koheleth, though, He had these proverbs, this wisdom sort of saturating his worldview. He was steeped in this framework, and he actually had this equation front and center in his mind. And he actually, Koheleth is a very nuanced thinker, guys. He actually agrees that the equations of proverbs generally do prove true. Wisdom is always better than foolery. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in in the darkness. What was clear to Koheleth, like you and I, was fighting gravity is foolish. That's a dumb way to live. But the fly in the ointment for Koheleth was at the end of it all, when it's all said and done, why does any of it actually matter? Whether you live wisely or whether you live like a madman and foolishly, death is going to take all. Ecclesiastes 2.14. 
but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, fate of the fool will also overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. And then Koheleth's frustrations with this, 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 this deep, long memory of death, this continual consideration of his end, it frustrates him to the point where he boils over in anger and he becomes, as we'll see next week, he just is overwhelmed with despair. So I hated life, he says, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind as he stares and screams at a skull in his hand. He was left asking, what is the point of any of this? Now, here is the key. And we've been talking about this through our journey through Koheleth. We will continue to bring this up. Do not miss Koheleth's key refrain. Under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun. Koheleth had this limited perspective to his life. And this life alone, under the sun. Under the sun for Koheleth was shorthand for Everything that happens in this world. Human reactions to death are as varied as there are people on this planet. Every person reacts differently. But the core of your response and the core of my response to a deep consideration of death, honestly, for those weeping in this room this morning and the core of their response with joyful declaration of truth, the, the core of our response is our belief about life and life after life. Koheleth, every Sunday morning, once again, brings us face to face with a cold splash of reality. And he basically says, if this is all there is, then yes, go eat, and yes, go drink, and yes, go be merry, because there's nothing else. But Koheleth certainly says, you're going to be way more merry if you live wisely. Did you guys catch that? He doesn't say, just go live like madmen. He says, your life is actually going to be better if you choose wisely through this life, instead of hucking yourselves off of cliffs. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter anyway, under the sun, because this is all there is. This is the thing that makes Koheleth, for me, such a compelling and relatable thinker. I just relate to this guy. I'm reading through, and he's a bitter, rough read. Some of you have noticed that, like we're sitting in small group, and, and one, of, one of the counselors is like, I can't read this. This is just, what? What is, this is too much. Is this in the Bible? This is in the Bible. Wow. This is what makes him such a compelling and relatable thinker. Because Koheleth is wrestling with the frustrations that you and I have, we can really only see what's directly in front of us. This whole faith in the things that are unseen, man, that is the difficult way to see the world. The truth is it's easy for us to see what's directly in front of us right now and not, un not intentionally, not even consciously. We tend to neglect the future realities and allow future realities to help us filter our current experience. We all do this. It's because we're limited. We're broken. It's what we are. And so we all see life through this lens. We're like little kids that cannot comprehend anything outside of our little pretend world of imaginary adventures. But friends, from Koheleth and the biblical records perspectives, this is a diminished view. The way that you and I see when we look at the world through only life under the sun, it is a distortion of real reality. The foolishness of the fall is still deeply clouding our hearts and our perspectives. And so we must look and listen long. In a church like Neighbors, spiritual practices that form our hearts around the realities of eternity 
So for example, your deepest longing that you have right now, you may think you just want a solid career with some decent money and a white picket fence and a beautiful spouse and maybe a dog and possibly a cat. Those longings are actually echoes of what we had in the garden. Security, peace, fellowship, love, acceptance. They're just echoes. When you listen to those longings, you're hearkening back to what we had. But when you listen to those longings, you're actually hearing what will be, minus the cat. I don't think there's cats in heaven. Oh, I just said that out loud. I just said that out loud. Email Joshua. You can talk to him about that because I'm, I'm, yeah, it's for you, brother. The longings that you have right now. I want a spouse. I want this. I want that. I want money. I want celebrity. I want fame. I want power. Those are all twisted and deformed by sin, but all of them are actually longings for what we will have in the kingdom, fully refined and fully renewed and made holy and clean. Do you all realize that Jesus said one day we will actually rule the universe? St. Paul said in the most obscure, weird passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, someday we're going to be judging angels. I have no clue what that means. All I know is when I feel like I'm out of control and when I feel like I am being oppressed and I feel like things are being done wrong in this world, I can look at St. Paul and I can say, but someday I'm going to judge angels and it filters everything. I can't see that. I don't feel that. By faith, I have to embrace that and I have to sit with that text and I have to meditate on it and it has to come up right in the middle of a sermon, completely off notes to shape everything that's being said right now. This is the reality of the Christian life. And this is why Jesus of Nazareth came. This is why Jesus came. Because we hear the echoes in our deepest longings, the perennial longings of the human experience. We hear the echoes of the garden lost, and we want it so badly, so badly. And we look forward to our futures, and we're terrified, and we're scared because we want acceptance, and we want provision, and we want safety, and we want security. And we say, oh, please, may I have that? And the answer is yes, in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the truly human one, truly human. His father said, make wise choices. And Jesus went forth embodying wisdom out of his interior, out of his very core, out of who and what he was. He was human wisdom. And he was a representative for us. He was a champion for us, making wise choices from his heart in our place as our victor. Where we foolishly rebelled, Jesus did not. Jesus lived life under the sun, and every day that he lived his life under the sun, present to what was in front of him, he had all of eternity filtering through his entire existence and his entire view. He embodied wisdom, and he showed you and I what the true way to be human is, while simultaneously doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And then, and then, and then, in what the world called foolishness, God took the fall for us. God took the, the foolish decisions, in, the consequences of our foolish decisions of mocking gravity, so to speak, allegorically. God took the consequences of that into himself. St. Paul tells us that the wisdom of God was displayed through Jesus' cross. Koheleth, Koheleth, somewhere in his frustration, was looking for this passage. 
his aches, his longings, his fears, his frustrations, his rants. He was crying out for this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate Kohelet, late Western modern Christian sitting here in San Diego. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. It is most likely that most of you are in this room this morning, and if you are followers of Jesus, it's because somewhere in life you hucked yourself off one too many cliffs and found yourself at the bottom of it saying, I got to, something's got to change. Something has to change. I can't keep hucking myself off of these cliffs. I'm hurting. And this is where Jesus came to you. He came to you there. The Pacific Ocean of mercy came and snuffed out the spark of madness in your soul. And he saved you in his wisdom. He saved you from yourself, saved me from myself. He is saving us from ourselves. And so now the Christian in the room who has said, save me, Jesus, from myself. Now we honor and we fear God as new creations. God has implanted the Spirit of God in us. And so we pray for the Spirit's wisdom. We pray for the mind of Christ. We yield ourselves to the Scriptures, the very words of Jesus and God himself. And our minds are transformed and renewed. And we begin to see the world like Jesus saw the world. And it's very, very intentional and very, very difficult. We are being shaped every day, all day, by madness and foolery. And so we must intentionally build our lives deeply in community, letting the sweet counsel of the church shape us, yielding to the teachings of the scriptures, trusting in our Father as he guides us by faith. And for us, wise living as Christians... It's not only the best way to sort of navigate the perils of the fallen world around us, but wise living for us is the beginning of what we are going to be in eternity as we are becoming more and more like Jesus. Listen, what you do here is what you will be for eternity. That's either terrifying or exhilarating for some of us this morning. What you choose here to honor and trust is what you will choose to honor and trust consciously, I believe, for the rest of eternity. That's, that's huge. Friends, C.S. Lewis, and I'm paraphrasing him, but essentially Lewis would say that fools are in hell. The fools in hell are there, and they don't want out. Fools in hell are still utterly convinced that denying the directives of God will bring flourishing. Madness. Madness. And so we take our skulls. We tattoo them on the insides of our arms. So when we put on our deodorant every morning, we're like, here it comes. <laughs> here it comes. And we've been rescued. We've been rescued. My grandmother, 
rescued. My pop, when he dies this year, rescued. Who you've lost yesterday, this week, over this last year, who you're going to lose over this next year, when you lose, rescued. So day by day, we resist the lies of our foolish hearts and we form ourselves around each other and the teachings of Jesus and we grow in wisdom just like Jesus did. And then when all is said and done and life under the sun is finally consumed by death, which it will be, the entire universe, because Jesus of Nazareth rose from the grave, we will rise with him. With Paul, we believe, 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's gone. It's gone. Peace and comfort upon your souls this day. Hold your skulls in front of your faces this week. Look in the mirror and see what is real. And know, death, you have no sting. It doesn't mean that we laugh with delight when you reckon with that reality. You lament it. It is an enemy of the Christian. It is the arch enemy of the Christian conquered in Christ. Please stand with me as we read our liturgy to close our teaching for the morning. Let's read together. Now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. And now the words of Jesus. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. As we come to communion, every time we read our...